to start this afternoon session, we have a 30-minute meditation period. So again, just choose your preferred method of meditation, and we sit quietly for 30 minutes. Okay, one strike of the gong will start the session, and then two strikes will mean the end of the sitting. Okay, you can relax now. And if you want, you can stand and stretch just for a moment. Okay, so we will now continue with with the exposition of the Mahamangala Sutta. And so now we come to verse three. So again, I will recite the Pali and then you can recite after me. Pati Rupa Desa Vasocha Pubeja Katapunyata Atta samapanidicha Etang mangalamuttamang Okay, so translated very literally. The first line is Vaso residing, pati rupa suitable or appropriate days of place. So residing in a suitable locality. And pube chakatapunyata. Pube means in the past. And then katapunyata means done merit. So having done merit, meritorious deeds in the past. And atta sama panidicha. Atta means self. Sama means right or proper, and paniti means resolution, determination. So literally, this is right determination of oneself or for oneself. Here it's translated a little bit freely, to set oneself on the right course. Maybe we could also translate it as right determination, right resolution. So this is said to be the Mangalamuttamang, the supreme blessing. And then where I have this under the ground plan, so the previous verse that we had, as I said, was concerned with proper orientation. 
And this is this verse is concerned with establishing secure foundations that is setting up the inner and outer requisites for success success in a sp- in a moral and spiritual sense for success in life and so the first requisite is in a way at least at the beginning of our life it's something over which we don't have any choice since we're born into a particular location but later in life we at least have some liberty to choose to find the right locale in which to reside and according to some of the commentaries some of the factors that go into the right locale the suitable locale one is to have a place with the right environment in a sense a place that has a suitable climate a hospitable climate and nice natural surroundings so even if you're living in the city but in the city there are parks that one can visit and one could take little trips outside the city in order to enjoy nature the place should have an effective infrastructure um the basic amenities running water <laughs> transportation places of employment it should have basic social services ideally good educational facilities healthcare um and it should be a peaceful place a place which is not riven by war and violent social conflict and then for following of course the path of the buddha dharma it should be a place in which one has access to the dharma you know i grew up in new york city in those days you know there were just no almost no buddha centers buddha temples meditation centers <laughs> so how did i get access to the buddha dharma in new york city i was telling venerable chang rei yesterday it's still there the place is still there it's a buddhist gift shop in chinatown <laughs> and so some of my friends we used to go to this chinese restaurant that was right next to it every once in a while from brooklyn we would travel to chinatown to get a real authentic chinese meal not the kinds in the chinese restaurants in brooklyn <laughs> and right next to it i would see this chinese this buddhist gift shop and there were statues of the buddha and i was always when i would see them for some reason they made a deep impression on me my friends you know would just look at them and continue walking but i was always drawn to them and would look at them and that sort of stimulated my curiosity what is this buddhism about and then i found buddhist books and started to read and then somehow my karmic connections gradually started to come to maturity but nowadays you know in almost any city or even re- town in even rem- fairly rem- remote locations in the US one could find some buddhist center or buddhist temple and if you can't find it in the place where you live 
just a short trip away and you can register for a meditation course, Dharma study course. So access to the Dharma is available almost anywhere here. But when we consider, you know, even though we are living in what the Buddhist tradition would call a barbarian country, you know, a place in which the Dharma is not the predominant religion or spiritual tradition of that land, when one considers the way so many billions of people around the world live, you can see what a great blessing it is that we have here in, in the United States, even with a political administration which might not be amenable to our preferences or desires right now. But basically, even though there are many shortcomings in the social system in this country right now, but still we could live with a reasonable degree of physical security. If you were living in a country like Yemen, Syria, Iraq, when you set, step outside in the morning, you don't know whether you're going to come back in the afternoon or the evening. Every day one's life is in jeopardy. And here we have a fairly decent supply of food available in countries, Yemen, Somalia, South Sudan. Somalia, South Sudan. Um, there was a fourth one. Yemen, South Sudan, Somalia. I don't think it was Ethiopia. Another country is facing Nigeria. Nigeria. That is what it is. The northern part of Nigeria facing severe famine. So thousands of people, their lives are going to be lost. Maybe hundreds, even tens of thousands of people because of food shortages. In other parts of the world, the big problem that people are facing are water shortages. So it's said that over the next couple of decades, water will become the new oil, that particular resource around which global conflict is going to erupt. Yet here we take it for granted, you know, we turn on the faucet and water comes out, we waste a lot of water. When I was living in Sri Lanka, in a place called the Forest Hermitage in Kandy, we got our water supply from a well and we had a system that had been installed with a pump, a, a petroleum pump or kerosene pump, so that the, the pump would pump the water from the well into a storage tank. And then from the storage tank, we turn on the faucet and the water comes out. Very convenient. But every once in a while during the time I was in Sri Lanka, the rains, the expected rains, the rainy season would fail. And when the rains fell, the well dries up. And then we go for days with very little water. And the way we get the water, does anybody know the meaning of the word Bowser? For us, it was like the word that was always ringing in our mind. The Bowser is something like these big trucks that you see conveying of gasoline, you know, to the gas stations. Well, this was a big truck that would fill up with water and we would have to call the, the Candy Municipal Center and ask them to send the Bowser to the forest and they would fill up the tank, 
our water tank. And after several days, or even like a week of very, very meager, meager supply of water, when we turn on that tap and the water comes running out, when I see the water, truly, I'm not exaggerating, it looks like sparkling diamonds coming out of the faucet. And for us, even though it was some, during those dry seasons when the rains would fail, it would be a struggle to get the Bowser to come out to the forest, but at least we could depend upon it. If it comes a little bit late, at least we get the Bowser. But there are many parts of the water of the world which are losing their access to water, in which water is such a scarce and precious resource. So we shouldn't take that for granted. And then as far as peaceful relations go, even though this is, I have to say rather sadly, that this is the country that precipitates conflict and war in many parts of, of the world. But within its, its borders, we are relatively free from violence, or, or let's say from international conflict within the boundaries of the United States. So we could say that we have, when we consider all of these factors, we have a suitable locality here. But we should never take it too much for granted and always bear in mind the struggles and difficulties that people around the world have to face just to subsist from one day to the next. Okay, so residing in a suitable locality, this refers to amongst establishing secure foundations. This is the establishment of, we could call it the environmental factor, the external factor. And now the next one brings us to a very distinctive Buddhist or Indian concept. This is merits done in the past. And the operative word here, let me get my scribble pad, document one, is the word punya, which we translate, I mean, I follow the uh, the established rendering for this and using the word merit. But I know quite a number of Westerners feel a little uncomfortable with this word because it suggests <laughs> like the children in the kindergarten, they do something good. And then the teacher after the, alongside their name in the registration book puts like a check mark. You've done something good. So you get some merit. Then at the end of the class or the end of the semester, if you've done enough merits, you get a little prize. But merit in the Buddha system is not quite like that. But merit, we could say, is a wholesome deed, wholesome karma, but it's wholesome karma looked at from a particular point of view. And that point of view is the ability of wholesome deeds to bring benefits to the agent, to the one who performs those deeds, to bring both mundane benefits and also to bring the world-transcending or liberative benefits. And so this here, in this passage, 
for this line of the verse? It's speaking about merits that were done in the past, probably referring to the merits that one has done in past lives. And so what are some of the results of merits done in the past that come to manifestation in the present? For one thing, it's our merits from the past that bring us into a, what's called a suitable locality. So the reason why we have been born or come to live in the United States, a country which is relatively peaceful, relatively prosperous and secure, is because we've done some wholesome deeds in the past that have created the conditions for birth here. Merits will contribute to things like good health, contribute to a long lifespan, contribute to a relative degree of material affluence so that one isn't thrown into a constant day-by-day bitter struggle just to um, subsist. Merits conduce to success in one's, say, educational endeavors so that one can graduate from school and go on to college and do well in one's studies. Of course, one has to continue to study diligently. You can't just rest on past merits. But the reason why some people can learn easily and quickly and succeed in school, one of the contributing factors is past merit. Merit will enable one to succeed in one's professional life. And then from the standpoint of a Buddhist practitioner, the most important consequence or fruit of merit is that it's merit that brings us into connection with the Buddha Dharma and merit that enables us to learn the Dharma well, to come into contact with good teachers, good facilities for learning and practice, and eventually merit that forms the foundation for world-transcending realizations. And so how does one create merit? I mean, we can't do anything about the merits in the past. Those were already done. But what are the kinds of deeds that create merit right here in the present? The Buddhist texts, the canonical texts, speak about three bases of merit or three types of deeds that generate merit. So these are giving or generosity. Sila, which is virtuous conduct, good conduct, conduct that accords with the precepts. And bhavana, which means the development of the mind, particularly development of the mind through meditation. So those are the three basic types of merit. But then the commentaries add additional types of merit, they sort of expand on these to give us what are called the 10 
types of meritorious deeds. So what are some of the others that are added? Okay, so we have service to others, like any kind of deed that we do that provides some kind of service to others. For example, there are people who maybe who volunteer to help with this meditation center. They come and set the place up and set up the electronic equipment and maybe provide um, Maybe they're not teachers themselves, but they come to set up all of the cushions and seats. They'd be making videos of Dharma teachings and putting them up on the internet. So these are kinds of service. And it doesn't have to be related to the Dharma, but I think especially of people who are doing what I would call on the mundane level, but extraordinary deeds of service. One that I think of are the Medicine sans frontier, doctors without borders. These are medical doctors who are well qualified. They could be working in their home countries in prestigious hospitals with good salary, living very safe and secure lives, but instead, motivated by compassion and a sense of conscience, they go to some of the most dangerous parts of the world, some of the most deprived countries in the world in order to work in hospitals there, in order to help suffering human beings, putting their own lives at risk. So we could say that that is really extraordinary act of service for others. And then the parallel organization called Journalists Without Borders. So again, these are people who have qualified in journalism, not connected to any of the major news networks, but they go to sometimes very dangerous parts of the world where there's wars going on or where there are oppressive regimes in order to reveal to the rest of the world the truth about things that are happening in this country, the truths that are sometimes covered over by the clouds, the cloak, the curtains of ignorance, fear of going into these countries, Okay, so service to others, then there is reverence, showing respect and veneration to those who are worthy of veneration. So when we show reverence to the Buddha, to the great disciples of the Buddha, then reverence to Dharma teachers, then that act is generating merit, merit. And when we share merits with others, like we did at the end of yesterday, at the end of the Dharma talk yesterday, and as we'll do at the end of 
the session this afternoon. We share the merits with the devas, the other kinds of spirits. So in our mind, instead of clinging to this merit and thinking, these merits are mine, I'm going to be rich and famous as a result of these merits, but we develop a mind of wishing others, whether humans or invisible beings, to witness these merits and to rejoice in them. And in some of the Buddhist countries, I think in Burma and Thailand, I don't think this is done in Sri Lanka, that at the major Buddhist temples, there's a kind of bell. And when somebody does especially meritorious deed at the temple, they'll go and they'll ring that bell. And so when other people hear the bell ringing, even though they don't know what's going on, but they know somebody has done a meritorious deed, and it gives them an opportunity just to pause in their day-to-day routine when they hear that bell, and then to rejoice that somebody has done a meritorious deed. And so, actually, these two go hand in hand, sharing the merits with others, and then when we see or hear about others doing some kind of virtuous deed, meritorious deed, we rejoice in those merits ourselves. Instead of developing the competitive mind or the envious mind, thinking, how can others do these good deeds? They're getting ahead of me in the race to enlightenment. But we turn that envious mind sort of upside down and rejoice and think, ah, they are doing wonderful, excellent deeds. And this becomes a little bit like we use the simile of the candle, which we can take the flame of one candle and other people can take their candles and light their candles from our candle. So that is rejoicing in the merits of others. Then listening to the Dharma is a kind of merit. Teaching the Dharma is a base of merit and then correcting one's understanding. That is, studying the Dharma in order to acquire right view, to learn the fundamentals of the Dharma and to learn the basic principles of the Dharma in order to sharpen and to clarify one's understanding. So these are ten bases of merit, ten means of acquiring and accumulating merit that we can practice in this life in order to establish the conditions for, in a future life, being able to say that we have punyata, that we have accumulated merit in the past. And what one notices The impact of doing meritorious deeds, we could say, have different, doing meritorious deeds have different kinds of impact upon our lives right here and now. So it's not the case that though we speak about merit as being a desirable conditions for success in a future life, but we could see the impact of meritorious deeds in our lives right here and now. For example, one kind of impact is that when one does meritorious deeds, it makes the mind light, feel lighter, clearer, more joyful, and happy. 
So if one, say, has the opportunity to perform some deed of generosity, initially there might be some kind of struggle within the mind. I don't want to give, I want to hold on to my wealth. But then there's this opportunity to give. And then after deliberating for some time, one decides, okay, I'm going to perform this act of giving. And one gives, and then one looks back upon the mind, and one thinks, now I feel lighter, happier, like I've let go of maybe just a fraction of the burden that I've been carrying around. But this lightness arises, and joy can arise in the mind. Again, through, say, the practice of, say, in mental development, practicing the loving-kindness, meditation on loving-kindness, maybe one has a lot of resentment towards others, some kind of underlying anger and hostility towards others. But if one sits even 15, 20 minutes just generating the thought, may all beings be well, may all beings be happy, then one finds that the mind is becoming lighter, more joyful, more flexible. So this is the way meritorious deeds, their first result, it's not something that comes in the next life, but right here they start to produce the impact on the mind, making the mind lighter, clearer, more ebullient, more joyful. And then, as one performs meritorious deeds habitually, regularly, consistently, one starts to transform one's character. So this is like developing new habits that are going to be the threads that make up one's character. So it's a little bit like a fabric. Like the fabric is made up of strands of cloth, and each strand of cloth is in turn made up of little threads that are woven together. And when we put them all together, then we have a fabric, like maybe the fabric of this robe. Okay, so our character in the same way, we start off with individual deeds. The individual deeds, when they're done persistently, consistently, regularly, they become like the threads of our habits. And then these habits get woven together to make up our character. So in this way, by consistently doing meritorious deeds, over time, even imperceptibly, our character starts to change. So by regularly practicing giving, we might start off miserly and selfish, but by little deeds of giving, we can become very generous. Our conduct, our actions might be, again, deviant and blameworthy, but by undertaking the precepts, we start to change our modes of behavior to become a person of true moral strength and integrity. By showing reverence to the worthy ones, we become humble and respectful, and then others start to respect us. Okay, so meritorious deeds then become, when they're done consistently, 
They become a way of transforming the whole direction of our lives. Okay, so that is the second factor under this heading. Then the third is to set oneself on the right course. Well, in some way we could say or to right determination of the self. In some way this is covered by the determination to do meritorious deeds. But another way to look at this, that I look at this, is to find certain faults within oneself, certain weak spots of one's own, and then make a daily determination to counteract those weaknesses, those inner defects or shortcomings. And what I recommend to people, you might sit down and think, ah, that's Bhikkhu Bodhi has given me some very good advice. You sit down, you say, what are my shortcomings? And you make a big list. (laughs) Or you ask your friends, what are some of my faults? Be completely candid with me. (laughs) And they say, really? (laughs) Yes, I want to change myself. Let me know. (laughs) And then you get a big list of 20 and you think, Okay, I'm going to determine, I'm determining to change all 20 of these. No, I say that's not the way to do it. But rather start off with just three faults that one can find in oneself. And every day, as part of your regular practice, make the determination, I am going to counteract that particular fault. For example, if you get angry easily, you make the determination, no matter what others say to me, whatever, no matter what happens to me, I'm not going to get angry or upset. If um, you find that you have a tendency to be gruff and arrogant in the way you treat other people, you make the determination I'm going to be humble and respectful in the way I treat others. If you have a tendency to be miserly and not want to share, make the determination, maybe every week or every month, I'm going to donate a particular portion of my income or my savings to some worthy charity. So one makes the determination and you do it every day and don't expect to see sudden changes and that you're going to become a completely different person overnight or in one week or one month. But what one finds is that by making these determinations and acting upon them, even when there's a lot of inner resistance, but still making the determination to face that resistance and break through it, your life starts to turn into a new direction. I told you in this morning about my first Buddhist teacher, the one who would deliberately make me get irritated and angry. And when I would get angry, what he taught me was that every day I should make the determination, that, deter- that particular determination, 
no matter what happens, I'm not going to get angry, but I'm going to endure the difficulties patiently. And so I did that. And I mean, I still get angry from time to time, but much less than in the past. In fact, there is a sutta, I have this on the list, my supplementary texts. Uh, I overpassed it. Yeah, this is the, in the Majjhimanikaya Sutta number eight, it's called the Saleka Sutta, the Discourse on Effacement, which lists 44 kinds of unwholesome actions and mental states and the determination to overcome them. So it starts off, others will be cruel or violent. We will not be cruel or violent here. Others will kill living beings, take what is not given, be impure. This is referring to the brahmacharya. He's speaking to the monks. Others will speak falsehood. We will abstain from falsehood and so on. Others might speak maliciously. We will abstain from malicious speech. Then it goes on to things like others will have wrong intention, wrong speech, will have right intention, right speech. It goes through the factors of the Eightfold Noble Path. Others will be overcome by sloth and torpor. Others will be restless. These are the five hindrances. Others will be angry. We won't be angry. Others will be insolent. We won't be insolent. Others will be envious. We won't be envious. And so on. So we have all together 44 of these kinds of determinations. So you can look at this list or just think of any three faults of your own and make that determination. You know, it just takes say at the end of your meditation sitting, takes just probably one minute or less to recite them silently to yourself. And yet they are planting seeds within the mind that, as I said, will be turning around the direction of your life until if you do it every day and then one year later, you know, don't start looking back after one week or one month and saying, have I changed, have I changed? Because it's not something that you'll perceive immediately. But one year later, review the results. Then after one year, you can look back and say, am I different? And when you do so, you'll see a lot of differences have taken place. And maybe even some of your family members and friends will start saying, what's happened to you? You've become so patient now. Well, you've become so soft and kind or so open-minded and flexible but previously like one of the faults actually the last one here again i mentioned this this morning others will adhere to their own views hold on to them tenaciously and relinquish with difficulty but we will be open-minded and flexible willing to hear other points of view and consider them Okay, so this takes care of 
verse number three. Now we can go on to verse number four. Let's get the Pali again. And I'll try to leave after each session, maybe about 10 minutes for questions. And then tomorrow in the afternoon, the last session will be an open session. I hope, I hope that we finish the sutta by the first session in the afternoon tomorrow. So the second afternoon session will just be an open session for questions. So if any questions come up later today that you didn't get a chance to ask, you could make a note of them and then ask tomorrow. Okay, so let us let us recite the Pali again. Bahu Sachancha Sipancha Vinayo Cha Susikito Subhasita Chayavacha Etang Mangalamutama <clears throat> Okay, so the English Bahusacha means abundant lear- learning <clears throat> and Sipang means some kind of craft or we would say some means training and some means of earning a, a livelihood. And then Vinayocha Susikito, so this is translated here, being well-trained in discipline, or we could say a code of discipline that is good to train in. And then Subhasita is well-spoken, goes with vacha, speech, well-spoken speech, this is the supreme blessing. Okay, the first word here. Here it comes from Bahu plus Sutta. The word Sutta, this word Sutta is not the same as Sutta, meaning a a discourse. Sutta means what one has heard. And Bahu means much. So literally, it's Bahu Satcha means having heard much. Because in the Buddha's time, Spiritual, religious teachings, in fact, all kinds of teachings, none of it was written down. During the, the Buddha's culture was not a literate culture in which writing was used, but all instruction and teaching was given orally. And so to become a learned person, one has to attend upon a teacher 
and then one hears the teaching and bears it in mind. And one who is to become very learned has to go and listen to many teachings. And so the Buddha praises very highly those monks and nuns who learn much, who listen to many teachings. But here I don't think Bahu Satchang is necessarily connected with the learning of the Buddha's teaching itself. I think that comes later in the sutta. But because the way I say it, to go, this is still part of, in the ground plan, part of preparing oneself, training oneself for success in life. Here it's rendered a well-rounded education or abundant learning. So this is acquiring the kind of learning that one needs in order to achieve even material or mundane success in life, as well as some kind of skill in a craft or profession, and then being well-grounded in a code of discipline. This, from a Buddhist perspective, would be learning and being trained in the five moral precepts to abstain from the taking of life, to abstain from stealing, to abstain from sexual misconduct, to abstain from false speech, to abstain from the use of intoxicants. And we're going to come across the five precepts implicitly at several points in the Mangala Sutta. But I, the way I understand it is that these precepts at different points in the scheme of the sutta take on somewhat <coughs> different functions. So here, this would be the training a young person in the proper conduct in life. And so when a young person is being prepared for success in life, <coughs> it's <coughs> from a Buddhist point of view, it's important not only to have the education, not only to learn a profession, but also to be guided by some kind of moral code. And that basic moral code that's to be instilled in the minds of the young person is the five precepts. <clears throat> so say within a Buddhist country, again, Sri Lanka is the only one that I'm well acquainted with. Even when parents, Buddhist parents, are bringing up their children, their kids, even though the kid might be just five years old, six years old, when they go to the temple, they'll recite, or even at home, the parents will recite to them in Pali or and then translate it into Singhala, the five precepts. So the kid you know, doesn't really know what, very well what the five precepts are, except if the kid maybe is tempted to kill insects or other little animals, the parent will say, no, don't do that. That's against the first precept. If the kid starts to steal things, take things from his brothers and sisters, the parent will say, don't do that, that's stealing. Of course, the kid this age won't indulge in sexual misconduct. <laughs> but if the kid is speaking falsely, the parent will say, don't speak falsely. And I don't think the kids at that age will indulge in intoxicants. But once they get to be young, you know, in the late adolescence, then all five precepts will be explained to them. So this is giving them a path of right conduct in life. 
and then well-spoken speech. We're going to meet this again, but in sort of a summary form, we could say that the four principles of well-spoken speech are to avoid false speech or lying, which is again one of the five precepts. Then not to utter malicious speech or slanderous speech or divisive speech. This is speech that's intended to divide others, to create conflicts between others. Instead, the Buddha says, the noble disciple is one who speaks words that lead to harmony and concord. And when people have been divided through some kind of tension, disagreements, one utters speech intended to bring them together and to achieve reconciliation. Then the third factor of well-spoken speech is not to speak harshly with an angry mind to others, not to speak words that, in, according in the words of the text, not to speak words that cut into the hearts of others like a butcher's knife, but instead to speak words that are polite, kindly, thoughtful and considerate, and that are pleasant generally pleasant to listen to. And then the fourth factor of well-spoken speech is not to indulge in gossip and idle chatter, but to be moderate in one's speech and to speak words that are pithy and meaningful and beneficial, especially beneficial to others. I found an interesting passage on, that comes in the Buddhist text on how one should speak when one has to criticize others. When one observes well-spoken speech, it doesn't mean that one never can criticize others, that one always has to pre, uh, praise and cuddle others. But there come occasions when it's appropriate to criticize others. But the Buddha lays down five guidelines for speaking, for reproaching others, or criticizing them. So he says, when speech possesses five factors, it's well-spoken, not badly spoken, and blameless and irreproachable among the wise. So what are these five factors? First, it's spoken at the proper time. Like you have a friend who's doing something wrong, and now he's sitting at a table, maybe in, you see him in Starbucks sitting at a table with his friends, and you don't walk over to him while he's in the conversation with his friends and say, you know what you did yesterday, that was completely inappropriate, very inconsiderate, you know, you should really have been more thoughtful, because then you're going to embarrass the person in front of his friends but rather when you want to criticize somebody to reproach him, you know, you have to find a time when he's alone and not 
engaged in something like some urgent task, like if he has to complete a report, say, at his workplace, and his boss has given him one hour deadline to complete the task, and he's hard at work, you don't go up to him and start criticizing him. But you have to find the right time, and then you could ask, do you have a free moment? I'd like to talk to you about something. That would be the appropriate time. Okay, then, when you're going to criticize, you have to be sure that what you are going to criticize about is true. And so one of the principles, in fact, that you see that the Buddha himself observes, sometimes people come to the Buddha, lay people or other monks, and they criticize another monk. They say, Bhante, so and so, venerable so-and-so has been doing this and doing that. Then the Buddha will say to one of the attendant monks, they'll say, go call that venerable and bring him here. So the, the other monk comes to the Buddha's presence. The Buddha doesn't begin right away by saying, you know, you shouldn't have done that. That was inappropriate and considerate. But the Buddha will say, is it true? Say, Revata, is it true, Ananda, that you did such and such? And of course, in the presence of <laughs> the Buddha, the other monk will not uh, prevaricate and try to wiggle his way out. Okay, so you have to be sure that what is said is true. And when you speak the criticism, you speak gently, not harshly. And what you say should be beneficial to the other person, some means to lift that person up from their unwholesome behavior, and establish them in what is good, and it should be spoken with a mind of loving-kindness. And so when the speech has these five factors, then it's subhasita, well-spoken speech. Okay, maybe at this point I should ask whether there's any questions. Please. Perhaps I think, even though I could hear you, but for the sake of the recording, it would be good to use the microphone. Thank you. Yes, earlier you said that at the end of meditation, we should take a minute to... Um, to make these three determinations. Yeah, the, determina the three factors that we want to improve. Yeah, yeah. Now, now what, what does that entail? Another, think about that? Or? Well, I would say that you could even, maybe at the beginning, what you do is make up just one, sent one sentence formula, just like in that sutta that I quoted. To give one example for the person who tends to get angry, though others speak harshly to me or do nasty things to me, I will not get angry and lose my temper. Thank you. Hi, Bonte. Thank you. Um, I had a question regarding merit. Yeah. Um, so you had said that um, that we, for example, reside in this country because of past meritorious yeah, deeds. Yeah. And so what I'm wondering is, how is it possible then that we're doing so many like bad deeds? It seems to me that we're a country that's generating a tremendous amount yeah, of bad karma. Yeah. yeah. And um, also, like we're we're it's like um, you know with the 
factory farming and how it's affecting the environment and how other people are dying because of our actions. Yeah, yeah. And then does that mean that people in Syria, have they, like, do they have bad karma and they yeah. have bad meritorious um, pasties? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, these are good questions and I have to say I don't have easy answers for them. Um, you know, like according to like the principles of the workings of karma that we find in the suttas, to take like another example, like being generous is supposed to be a condition for gaining wealth in the future. But I look at the people in this country who are like the multi-billionaires, maybe there are a few who are good-hearted and use their wealth and beneficent purposes, but like many of them belong to this particular clique which is doing everything to sponsor the campaigns of ultra-extreme right-wing candidates who will enact laws that knock out, you know, like welfare programs intended to benefit the poor, to, I mean, recently there was an attempt to propose to enact this, they call it Ryan Care and Trump Care, this new health care insurance policy that would knock over 10 years, 24 million people off Health, health insurance, and I mean, it's just difficult to see how, if they were generous in the past life, they could have such mean, spiteful temperaments in the present. So I don't have an easy explanation for that. But in my thinking, I don't try to look back and from the present and look back to the past and then figure everything out in terms of karma but rather I place myself in the present in terms of what I'm going to do, what kind of decisions I'm going to make. And since I have trust in this, the basic lawful, moral lawfulness of actions, I want to do things that, I don't want to become a billionaire, <laughs> but I want to do the kinds of actions that if the process of karma truly works is going to give me at least a reasonable degree of security from material want and enable me to make the right encounter, say, with the Buddha Dharma, to have the opportunity to practice and then to be able to benefit myself and benefit others. So I can't figure everything out. In fact, the Buddha says that the workings of karma is supposed to be one of the four inconceivable items. He says, if you try to figure it all out intellectually, you're likely to go mad. <laughs> and so I just take it on trust that there is such a lawfulness, moral lawfulness operating through our willed actions, but how everything hangs together and operates together. I don't understand all of the details. Thank you. Yes, please. And please, yeah, please take the microphone. I wondered if you could say a little more about the, um, the nuance between right speech, yeah. which I think comes up later in the, yeah. in the, in the, in the, uh, the Sutta, and this section now about being well-spoken. Yeah. And you've used examples of what I often are treated as um, descriptions of right speech. Yeah. Yeah. So is there, I mean, I guess there's a nuance here. Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe learned speech or... And what? Maybe learned speech or speech that is appropriate to one's trade. I, I'm not clear on that. Yeah, what I would... 
Thank you. What I would say, this is just my guess. Let's just get the passage. You see here we have different types of training. This would be for a person, as I said, setting out in life. So they need learning, skill in a craft, a code of discipline. And then probably this would be being instilled with by teachers, learning from teachers the principles of well-spoken speech. So later, we actually don't come to right speech itself explicitly later in the sutta, but we come to, well, we'll see it later, something called um, dhammacharya, behavior that accords with the dhamma, which the commentary explains is the 10 courses of wholesome action, and that includes the four factors of right speech. So I would say like this is training a person setting out in the path of, in the principles of right speech. Later, what comes are the same principles, and even we come to the five precepts again implicitly, but this is for the adult who is now being enjoined to observe these principles. Maybe we take one more question, then we will have the break. we bring the microphone here. Thank you, Pante. I wonder if you could give some advice on developing patience and, and, and moderating anger. Yeah, we're going to come. Patience is one of the mangalas that comes later. So I'll deal more with patience when we come to that particular factor. I think it comes, it comes tomorrow. So just, 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 just be patient until tomorrow. Okay, since I didn't really get to answer that question, if there's one more question now, we could do that. Okay. This one is quick. Um, can you explain what the word cha means? Oh, cha public? is just and. Ah, uh, okay. And then within, um, in Pali, you see, in English, we would say, for example, dogs and cats, where the word and comes between the dogs and cats. But in Pali, usually, ch will follow each word in a sequence of nouns. So if we were saying dogs and cats, according to Pali syntax, we would be saying dogs and cats and. Okay, that explains it. Thank you. Did, did you? If you have the question, we still have, we could do two more. Sorry, Bonte, I'm sorry. Uh, my question deals more with the six directions, and we, we're not there yet, so. Oh, I yeah, yeah. So. Okay, so let us take, okay, we do. If, if, what do you usually do here? So 10 minutes, 15 minutes? What, I don't know what the custom is. 10 minutes is enough? Of course, it's only... <laughs> okay, so I think it's 3.05, so 3.15, we'll come back and start again.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.